Changing the story around pain. This is the Modern Pain Podcast, helping to improve the understanding and treatment of pain across the world through education, advice from experts in the field, personal stories from those living well with pain, and more. A modern approach to pain treatment, management, and education, while helping to bring the patient voice back to healthcare. This is the Modern Pain Podcast. Here's your host, Dr. Mark Cardula. What is going on, everybody? It is Mark Cardula, lead faculty and CEO here at Modern Pain Care, where we make you the complete clinician. Coming at you with a episode to complement our last episode on upper quarter neurodynamics. I know Jared and I got winded, and we saw that this one was probably going to go a little bit, so we wanted to break it up a little bit in another bite-sized chunk for you guys to get some clinical value out of it. Um, so, Jared... Let's let's just dive right into it because we talked about it as we started getting into the last podcast about man there's there's some things I think we can go deeper into that we see commonly in the younger population new grads DPT students um, even maybe some practicing clinicians who might be new to maybe neurodynamic treatments but this thought of like purposeful application of these tests especially when it comes to the neuro uh, upper quarter um, what are you seeing as far as really doing it for with purpose and thought behind it and patient centeredness behind it? Um, what do you see going on in the clinic and, and what are your thoughts on ways we can improve that in the clinic? Well, so what I see a lot is that um, people, when they're approaching neurodynamic assessments, they're not necessarily being sequential in the way that they apply forces and they're not being purposeful in the way that they do that, you know, trying to actually uh, lock things down to a, a prime component that you're moving so you can walk away with an objective uh, marker for how sensitive to load maybe that neural tissue is. Uh, so um, the, the first thing that I see is people on average do not pay close enough attention to their shoulder depression, right? So we know that on the radial nerve tension test and the median nerve tension test in particular, uh, scapular or shoulder girdle depression is one of the key components. And uh, I personally believe that it should be applied first. Um, and, and then you go through the other components, whether, you know, for the median nerve, it's elbow extension and, and you know, uh, supination and abduction and wrist extension and, you know, elbow extension and all that sort of stuff. Um, I see a lot of people just jerk uh, you know, a patient's arm a quickly into this position, uh, you know, into that, you know, ULTT a or whatever, or the ULTT median nerve position. And they, they go in one smooth motion and they kind of apply all the components at the same time. And then they don't really have a good objective way to say, Hey, this is how sensitive that is. This is at what range of motion that becomes highly sensitive. And if I come back to check this later, I don't actually know where my mark was to see if I've made improvements in, you know, the, the ability of that nerve to tolerate uh, tension loading before it becomes irritable. Uh, so it, I think that one of the things that really needs to be done is when you check a, a median nerve ULTT, for instance, you've got to apply your scapular depression and you've got to abduct the arm with the elbow bent. And then you've got to supinate the hand and extend the wrist and use the elbow as what we call the sensitizing component, right? So as you're extending the elbow, it, A, it's the 
the easiest joint to visualize, you know, what range of motion it's at. So I've got my scapular depression, I've got my shoulder abduction, I've got my supination, I've got my wrist and hand and finger extension and uh, external rotation of the shoulder. And then I'm taking that shoulder gradually and slowly into, I mean, the elbow gradually and slowly into, a, you know, more and more extension. And you know, maybe that nerve becomes mechanically sensitive when the elbow is at 90 degrees of flexion. And then you do some treatment, right? You come back and you do some treatment to the neck, like we talked about in last episode, whether that's UPAs, whether that's a, a manual traction, whether that's a repeated motion where you do repeated cervical retractions or extensions or rotations or whatever it may be. And then you come back and you go exactly through that same process of uh, systematically applying the loads to the shoulder and to the arm and then gradually extend the elbow. And if all of a sudden now they're 30 degrees from full elbow extension, well, you've gone from 90 degrees to 30 degrees to full elbow extension. And, and your comparable sign demonstrates that you have made an objective improvement. And, um, you know, in our uh, cl complete clinician supercharged, one of our students uh, just had a question to me about, hey, how do I how do I document real objective changes other than just like manual muscle tests and that sort of thing? And this would be a perfect example of an objective change that you can document in your you know, in your note, in your paperwork to show, hey, we're making progress because this neural tissue is becoming less mechanically sensitive to load, which is ideally going to transfer over into less pain with ADLs. It's ideally going to transfer over into maybe increased strength in the rotator cuff or whatever it is because you have a less mechanically sensitive nerve. And I can show that it's gone from 90 to 30. And then I can compare that to the other side to see what is about normal for them on that other side. And it's just, uh, I see this being done a lot of the time in a really haphazard way and not in a really purposeful, systematic test, retest, objective evaluation type of way. And I, and I hope that that's coming through well, you know, on, on the audio, on the podcast that you can visualize that. Yeah, no, I think you ex explained it well. And I think there, there's a few other things I would even piggyback on top of that, which I think uh, you, you nailed it as far as, you know, some of the thoughtfulness and kind of really trying to be methodical in your application. This, especially with neurodynamics, you need to be consistent and reproducible and repeatable. If you're going to get con any decent data out of that, like if you got, that's what I'll tell students, you need to look at where your pillows are, if somebody's legs are bent up or if they're not. I mean, these are all things that can affect tension in the system. So, I mean, just really being re consistent with exactly how you position patients. The other thing, I mean, I'm hundred percent with you where people just kind of wail out into that position without any real methodical step-by-step -step approach where they can see which step of the process or things becoming sensitive, maybe have some measurables, like you said, with elbow range of motion and things like that. But the other thing uh, that I'd say, especially when you're trying to rule out like shoulder, um, some folks are very kyphotic, for instance, and they, their scapular plane is tilted at a 45 towards the, the, ceiling of the clinic yet the students and and me when i was early on want the arm in full 90 degrees you know like neutral horizontal adduction where this person's just getting the anterior shoulder just yanked on so i tell students you know try to get things in the scapular plane for that patient which for every for each patient 
may be different. But if you have them, if their scapular plane is 45 towards the ceiling and you got their elbow straight zero degrees away from the side, like straight away from the side, then you're creating quite a load to the anterior shoulder, which can muddy the waters on if it, am I getting sensitivity of neural situations or am I just parking anterior load on the glenohumeral joint? That could be a possible, you know, local nociceptive tissue issue going on at the shoulder. So just being good with that as well. But I would, uh, I think what you said, it really, you know, encapsulates it well as far as just being methodical with what you're doing and your positioning and what you're and documenting using it as a, as a measurable and as a test retest for patients. Um, patients often are pretty like, holy cow, that was like zinging a lightning bolt at 90 degrees. And now you got me to like, if not full extension, significantly better. I mean, that's where I think too, like, you know, a, te- a, a change needs to be something that's significant to the patient. Like sometimes we get, Ooh, it's, it's five degrees better. And yet the patient ascribes no change, no, nothing that's different in that. So that's just where I think you got, let's make some significant changes. Like where the patients, well, now some patients for various reasons might be very resistant. Maybe they're just fed up and distressed and not really feeling like there's change. And it's going to be a hard time to convince them that anything is not that we need to be, you know, convincing them, but you know, this is where let their body convince them by, and then maybe you do throw some measurements at people to say, Hey, this was 90 degrees. Now it's 45. That's a significant change. Yes. We're still finding that sensitivity, but your body's telling me that, man, we're, we're 45 degrees more. We've doubled, you know, we've halved some of the sensitivity range of motion that you were, you were dealing with earlier. So to me, that's a good sign. I think we're heading in the right spot. Some people need that kind of reassurance and rah, rah, especially when they've been through a really rough, um, stretch um, that they're not really keen to see improvement because they haven't seen it for a long time. Um, but uh, let's talk a little bit about lower cervical too because I think we talked about this as well as far as like when we start getting into the hand and looking at like repeated motions, lower cervical-based treatments um, and how those can impact a radial wrist or um, even, you know, some some things going into like the pinkies, uh, you know, the, the fifth digit on the hands is a common one. I'll see people say they're getting tingling and issues there yet the lower cervical being that kind of you know often mechanically sensitive load because people are parking it in often sensitive loads and again i'm not going to get into the posture debate posture is only relevant if you can do something to it and it makes an observable objective and ideally subjective change in the patient's um condition so i get the whole forward head is you know not the next cancer um to people but it can be for the n equals one problem i shouldn't say cancer but the the could be a problem for the patient if you demonstrate that changing that impacts their clinical uh, presentation then i think we can make more justification that but blanket population studies saying that everybody should ascribe certain things obviously doesn't work um what do you think and what have what's your experience been with kind of the value of getting into that lower cervical spine uh, when it comes to looking down the chain of neurodynamics I mean, I think that anytime I have uh, somebody present with symptoms in their hand, it, it, it's something that at least has to be looked at, right? You you can't overlook this just because we know that you've got your kind of C6, C7, C8, you know, dermatomal representation in the hand. Uh, so just like in the mid cervical spine with the lateral shoulder, you have to do some sort of... Uh, you know, mechanical assessment of the lower cervical spine and whether that's repeated motions or whether that's, uh, you know, CPAs or UPAs, whether that's, uh, you know, overpressure, even through the the upper thoracic spine, right? We can't isolate the, you know, specific joint segments super well. So, uh, you know, I can't say that, oh yeah, I'm really hitting, you know, C7 right now. So what I try to do is look 
you know, at, at a range of maybe three or four vertebrae where, oh, okay, this is kind of, this is upper thoracic and lower cervical. And, oh, this is kind of lower cervical and mid cervical. And, oh, this is kind of mid and upper. I kind of group those together. I think that um, we have decent enough evidence and, and we have enough accessibility with our hands to, you know, those, those joints that we could probably say we're getting, you know, two or three vertebrae together. But I, I, I try not to ever hang my hat on that. I am specifically assessing, you know, the right sided C7 on T1 or anything like that, just because we're, we're just not that good. And that's not how the body works. If you press in one place, guess what? Some of that force disperses to other places as well. And you have referred hyperalgesia, where if you're pressing on one place that's sensitive, that might not be the place that's actually, you know, quote unquote, the cause of that sensitivity. Um, but this is, you know, with the lower cervical spine, this is where I really like to get into uh, repeated motions, especially retraction in particular, just because as you alluded to, a lot of people tend to hang out in that lower cervical, you know, flexion where they ha- they do have the forward head posture. And, you know, that's not, the forward head posture is not bad in and of itself. But if you happen to have a tissue that's sensitized due to, you know, consistent and sustained overload, then, hey, let's change it. Let's move it a little bit. Let's get some blood flow. Let's get some mechanical stimulation. Let's do something different to it and see see if that affects your symptoms. And if I do some really, really good repeated retractions where we get upper cervical flexion and we're trying to get some lower cervical extension, that sort of thing, and it affects, you know, symptoms and whether it makes them better or worse. First assessment, I don't necessarily care. I just want to see that it is doing something. And that's uh, that makes me go, ah, there's something there. This isn't a Guyon's canal problem, or this isn't a, you know, cubital tunnel problem. Maybe, maybe this has got something going on a little bit higher up the chain. And that lets me zoom out and say, all right, I'm not going to just look at this person's hand. Now I'm going to look further up the chain. Maybe I'm going to do a a ULTT assessment of the ulnar nerve now and see how sensitive that is. And, you know, pair that with my repeated motions exam and pair that maybe with, you know, some, some other things like a, like a supine, you know, manual traction to see if that affects symptoms. There's a lot of different ways that you can go with this lower cervical spine and presentation of symptoms in the hand. And I, I think that it's, you know, as we've, we've been beating a dead horse, it's being purposeful and it's being systematic and it's not just throwing a bunch of crap against the wall and seeing what sticks. It's having a test retest approach. It's having a comparable sign. It's having, uh, you know, a purposeful, um, we'll say, you know, a purposeful, uh, I don't want to say, um, <laughs> Well, I don't, I don't want to use the wrong word, so I'm not going to say that. It's just being really purposeful about that step-by-step step and a piece-by-piece process to see if you can actually um, uh, draw some connections at a wider range that don't necessarily present upon, you know, a- initial assessment. Yeah, I think uh, just being purposeful, thoughtful, um, you know, not tunneling in diagnosis, not falling into some of the cognitive bias and heuristic errors and clinical decision making errors that we teach folks about in, in, in a lot of our mentorship and in our, our coursework as far as like you need to be have a thorough process where you cast the net wide and you don't just zoom in knowing when you need to zoom out like Jared said and then zooming in too and, and, and like we mentioned in past episodes where it could be a little bit of neurodynamics and also a sensitive shoulder or wrist or things like that where you might need to do a little bit of both but again you have a process that determines if both is truly changing things 
things or is it one where hey i'm looking down a neck here and there's nothing going on i'm trying to make this a neck then that is truly just a a wrist issue so i mean you got to be careful on both sides of that coin not to get you know too you know, and i will freely admit and this is a i and i tell students that you know this is my bias that i always try to keep in check that i almost try to see spine more than i should when it's truly a local tissue issue in the extremity so i but if as long as you have a thoughtful cognitive you know kind of de-biasing process that you're constantly incorporating your practice this metacognitive purposeful reflective practitioner process then you can ideally check those biases and make sure you have a clinical process that checks your biases that doesn't just zero in on i'm just going to treat the neck for everybody you're going to say hey i have this bias of treating the neck for a lot of these things i need to make sure that it's in fact doing something or i'm not just trying to make it be this diagnosis versus being truly is being a contributor to that patient so again being a thoughtful, reflective practitioner, it, it seems. Um, but again, it's easy to get in the grind. It's easy to get where the schedule's packed and you're just trying to keep your head above water, get your notes done and all that stuff. But I honestly think if you can employ this, which might be a little bit less efficient off the get-go as you get used to it and get good with it. But man, once you get running with this, would you agree with me, Jared, that if you can start then and you get to treatment thresholds, you get to, to doing to treatments that make changes a lot quicker as your pattern recognition grows, as you start seeing cases that the next time you see that case come through the door are you going to stumble through those four techniques you just stumbled it to get to to the treatment that helped them the most are you going to say hey been here before seen this condition walk through my door before i'm going to skip those four things that didn't help much for that patient in the past i'm gonna go right to that one that did and then lo and behold you're making changes a lot more quickly with people moving them forward more uh, rapidly in their care is that something that you've uh, seen in your practice as well jared yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's the whole the whole concept of clinical pattern recognition, right? And uh, it was taught to us in a super mechanical way, right? It was taught to us in like, well, it's clinical pattern recognition of, uh, you know, painful arc and, you know, Hawkins-Kennedy test and, and that sort of stuff. But uh, when you start looking through a different lens, you start developing a clinical pattern recognition for a wider range of things, right? You start developing a, a clinical pattern recognition for um, maybe the person's background, the person's thoughts, the person's emotions, their their, their feelings and anxieties about it, uh, paired with mechanical signs and symptoms, paired with, oh, wait, I'm not just going to look locally at the joint. I'm going to look a little bit further out at joints above and below, or I'm going to look at the spine, or I'm going to look at other things that might be going on with a history of sleep, with a history of, um, you know, hyperalgesia and hyperresponsiveness to a lot of other stimuli in the past. And all of a sudden your clinical pattern recognition becomes uh, even better and better because you're pulling in a dynamic web of information from so many different layers of that human being, right? And, it, and then once you get really good at that, then you learn how to make it person-centered within that clinical pattern recognition. And, and to me, that's that's what's being the complete clinician, right? That is being able to re recognize the patterns at uh, multiple levels while still being person-centered and recognizing that that is an individual. I like it. You know, the mechanical level, the person level, the cultural level, the past experience level, their expectations level, the context they bring into the room level, the context you bring in the room with your biases and things that we talked about 
talked about that you need to keep in check. But yeah, if you have a reasoning process that takes that all in and you start recognizing patterns that this patient with these expectations, this background, this, this uh, you know, level of distress, this sign of homeostatic system sensitivity. I have a patient right now who's just in a world of stress with some of the strain she's been on emotionally and financially with COVID and what it's done to her. And she's got neurodynamics, but it's everywhere and it's sensitive. And if I start to me, it's like she needs to like find and we're, we're trying to get her help because she needs help. Like, I don't think nudging on tissues. I said, we can help and, you know, calm things down. And we do in session. But again, it's like then she goes to her life where life is not a, a very stable situation right now. So she's on, on board with some of the discussions we've had. And we'll, we'll have episodes where we talk about how do you recognize the human in distress that is it's that you need to maybe look a little bit more human system. And these are the folks that unfortunately fall in these medically unexplained system categorizations or chronic overlapping pain conditions, which isn't a bad thing. It's just that medicine doesn't do well because they try to put their finger on one factor and medicate it when it's a life, it's a human problem these people have. But again, that's the reasoning you need to have with this. And that's where truly the complete clinician can recognize when it's more than what I need to do through a nerve or a tissue. I need to help this human in a situation of distress get the resources she needs that my hands might be part of that journey and my our exercise and our our, our partnering with them but maybe we need to enlist some other folks and, and look a lot more big picture at that human than again what lies underneath your fingertips so good points that you bring up there jared anything else you want to add to the uh discussion before we wrap up this episode for today no, no. Just ask everybody to stay tuned when we uh, circle back around to this topic and talk about uh, neurodynamics in the lower extremity. And I think we need to get into a little bit more on dosing as well. So I think that <clears throat> the, the next episode will be uh, really interesting for that. Absolutely. Stay tuned as we continue down the neurodynamics rabbit hole. You can see Jared and I tend to, to, to weave into some different uh, discussions, but hopefully they were valuable to you. Um, if there's any other discussions that you guys want to hear about or, or clinical uh, interventions or things you're seeing in the clinic that you want to uh, hear us talk about, let us know. Or if you want to dive really deep into it, check us out in our Complete Clinician Supercharged course where Jared and I are coaching folks one-on-one -on -one to really start employing the stuff that we're talking about and, and creating that Complete Clinician um, where we're kind of fed up, not necessarily fed up, but kind of feeling like the weekend course just isn't cutting it. You need to have somebody over your shoulder looking at what you're doing, giving you feedback, doing things where you don't have to move your life to a residency and and, and you know sacrifice 20 grand in salary. You can do a, a much more efficient way of, of really becoming a, a really good practitioner early on in the game. So reach out to us if you have any questions about that. We're happy to have a dis discussion to see if it's a good fit for you. But until next time, uh, make sure you join us for our next episode as we talk about lower extremity neurodynamics and some of the dosing involved. Um, we will talk to you then. This has been another episode of the Modern Pain Podcast with Dr. Mark Karchula. Join us next time as we continue our journey to help change the story around pain. For more information on the show, visit modernpaincare.com. Also, visit the Pain Masterminds Network on Facebook for free education and resources. This podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for medical advice or treatment. Please consult a licensed professional for your specific medical needs. Changing the story around pain. This is the Modern Pain Podcast.